welcome to episode 233 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. How you doing? I'm doing great. Listen, I'm partly the reason I'm great is because we're nearing the end of this journey with the David Murray's book called Reset. And we're into chapter nine. We're going to talk a little bit about relationships. Yes. So that's going to be super fun and I think very interesting. But of course, before we get to all that good stuff, the center cut, if you will, let's talk a little <laughs> bit about affirmations and denials. And I would like to ask you, to go first, which with whatever you choose. So all, all my uh, affirmation, we always say that they're going to be quick and then they, they're not, but <laughs> this one actually will. So I picked up a product yesterday. You might've heard of this, maybe not. It's called Rocketbook. Have you heard of this? No. So what Rocketbook is, is this company essentially, they took whiteboard or like wet erase board. They took that and they managed to make it into paper. And okay. so it's it's a notebook that has 36 pages and you write on it with a particular pen, which is it's not a special pen. It's just a particular pen that you use and uh, you can just wipe it off when you're done. So for me, mm. I like to take handwritten notes and then convert those into electronic notes. So having like a moleskin notebook or a stack of flashcards is incredibly wasteful and not just for the environment, which I try to be conscious of, but also just in terms of spending extra money, buying moleskin notebooks two, three times a year when you fill them up um, is not cost effective. So with this, you you have 36 pages to do that. And then it comes with a little app on your phone and you just scan it and it shoots it up into whatever online cloud you want. So mine goes to Evernote and then I'm transcribing those notes into something else. So the one that I got is their core, uh, Rocketbook core. Uh, there's different models that have slightly different features. I don't really know exactly what all of them are, but uh, I like it. It's pretty great. I took my church notes this morning, sent it to the cloud, wiped it off. It's all set. So check it out. They're called Rocketbook. I got mine at Staples. You can go to rocketbook.com and there's lots of videos and explanations. It's a cool product. So what people can't see is that you're kind of waving it around. I am, yeah. Like, as you're explaining, yeah, super excited. So what I didn't realize is this is a notebook. It's yep. notebook size. Yep, it's the same shape and roughly the same size as your traditional moleskin journal notebook. Uh, it's got a spiral bind binding like any other, you know, Mead notebook or whatever you would get for like high school. Um, and then uh, it has a little QR code in the corner of each page. And each page is outlined in black, so the software uh, can recognize when you're pointed at a page, and then it's got a clear black outline, so it knows exactly where the boundaries of the page are. So the scans to your um, note-taking, or you can send a PDF to your email, however you want to do it, um, is nice and crisp. It's easily readable. It has OCR recognition, so if you have handwriting that's clean enough to recognize, which mine is not, uh, it can recognize it and transcribe it for you. And it actually even has, you could have multiple different destinations and they have these little icons on the bottom that you assign in the app and you just cross off which one of the icons you want to send that particular note to. And then the software automatically detects it. It's, it's a very, very slick, well put together product. 
Um, I'm not normally one of those people that's like, save the planet. I mean, I think we need to be ecologically responsible, <laughs> but I don't, I don't like do every possible thing to try to be ecologically mindful. Like I drive a gasoline car, I, you know, but this is an easy to do product that has benefits for the environment and then benefits too for me. Like this, this note taking process, I'm trying to learn the Zetetto Kelstan, whatever it is really relies on lots and lots of handwritten notes. So this enables me to do that without spending a ton of money on stationary, you know, moleskins and other stuff like that. That just came across as if you were anti-environment. You were like, burn all the fossil fuels. Yeah. I throw trash wherever yeah. I want to when I'm out. I mean, these are reusable, but I don't reuse them. <laughs> I just buy a new one. And it's like plastic sheets, basically. I just, no, I'm just kidding. I mean, I try to be responsible, right? Like I recycle, but like I'm, I'm not crazy about it. But this is an easy thing that even somebody who doesn't want to go out of their way it, it's worth doing because it actually saves you money in the long run, it saves you time getting your notes into some sort of durable electronic form. Uh, it really is. I'm very impressed by the product itself, but I'm even more impressed by all of the uh, digital infrastructure that happens behind the scenes to get the notes to where they need to go. It's just a really cool product. And they have them all different sizes. They have some that are like grid paper. If you're doing technical work, you need to draw graphs. I'm looking at you, Jesse. Um, or, you know, if you want to get one of the little flip ones, that's really small, which I was thinking about for like note cards, basically, it'd be little note cards that I write on. Uh, but I went with this sort of standard size. Like I said, it's the size of a standard moleskin notebook. Yeah, I'm super intrigued. Uh, this is the thing about this podcast. I think, and I'm totally biased, that we're like full service. If you went back over our 233 now episodes, it's almost like we give you a little bonus because we're so nerdy about things like note-taking <laughs> and reading that if you just listen to it for that, like I, maybe we, you could stack us up against like there's got to be a podcast out there that just talks about note-taking and reading. And I, I feel like we would compete very favorably yeah. and that's not even the, the real thing that we're here to talk about. I know. Yeah. No, I, I think, uh, <laughs> we are here to serve. And sometimes that means we have other recommendations that have nothing to do with anything. So, I mean, we've yeah. recommended everything from notebooks to like pickle your own pickles kind of stuff. And yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, so check it out. I have to say before I get into a little bit of my own affirmation, because you just said the pickle thing again, apparently how they, how they come out. Well, uh, so I did try some. Uh, they're amazingly delicious. Good. And again, I, I did zero. I can't emphasize this enough. God made the pickles for me. But so, I mean, it, we sometimes say in a cliche way, like God deserves all the credit. I have no credit to take in this, <laughs> literally. But some one of our longtime listeners actually emailed us and called me out in the pickle thing. And they said that I, I know I've known this person for quite some time uh, when we both attended a different church, we attend different churches now, but uh, he called me out saying that I have been talking about pickles apparently and using the example of being marinated and being pickled in something and how that's a metaphor for the gospel, like as far back as 15 years ago. <laughs> so he's <laughs> calling me out saying, apparently this is my thing. And I've just never realized it. I mean, I get it. Uh, but I, I was kind of like, wow, I guess I really talk about pickles a lot. I don't mean to. This is a slightly different avenue of pickling because I never made them before. But yeah. I'm just going to lean into it, everyone. So you can bring it up. And I, I totally agree with you. Listen, I talk about it a lot. And I guess I'm that dude now. I'm like the pickle guy. 
Yeah. If there's one thing that you can count on on the Reformed Brotherhood, it's episodes going too long. But if there's two things <laughs> that you can count on on the Reformed Brotherhood, it's Jesse saying something about being pickled in the gospel, yes. running or leaping over or through a wall. Yes. That content proceed or intent precedes content. Yes. Uh, and uh, probably the word metabolize is going to be in there somewhere too. So yeah. 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 I'm leading into it. I accept I have all my those things. things too. Yeah, I accept all those things. So actually, kind of in that vein, I'm going to come back with I'm doubling down on affirmations. This is I'm just all in on this one now. And it's because I gave this as a perfunctory affirmation, I think many, many episodes ago, because I was only partly through the book, but it was so good because I hate I, I think you and I are probably alike. We don't like to affirm something that we haven't like fully experienced yeah. or behind. So I really hesitate. I'm reticent to give a book recommendation that I'm not fully completed with, but this was so good. I had to then, and I finished it finally, and now I am doubly in. So I'm affirming J.C. Ryle's practical religion because I think it's everything, not everything, it's a great example of everything that you and I have been after, even with this book reset by David Murray, and that is we want to get to spiritual maturity that's reflected in spiritual character. And certainly spiritual character maturity is not less than proper theology, but it's definitely more than proper theology yeah. because it's that life application of the changed mind, the transformed heart by the power of the Holy spirit through the scriptures. And, uh, for me, pound for pound, page for page, word for word, this book is probably among the best I've read in five years. It's that good. And, uh, in particular, he has a chapter where he talks about sickness. It's probably the best writing on sickness that I, maybe I've ever read. And certainly I've read a lot of wonderful puritanical works about sickness. And here's what set it apart is he not only talked about what it means for a Christian to embrace sickness, to be in a world of sickness, to experience it themselves. But what I've never heard anybody really appropriately dressing it after was the Christian's responsibility in sickness. Yeah. This active responsibility to play a role in what it means to suffer affliction. And he does it so well. So uh, at the risk of extending this far more than it already should be, I want to read you a paragraph because this for me was something that I read and I almost had to go through a wall, uh, <laughs> had to just like put the book down and and throw it aside because it was, it was so good. This is in his chapter of sickness, just a couple sentences, but I want to read it for all of us. This is what J.C. Rao writes. The day may come when after a long fight with disease, we shall feel that medicine can do no more and that nothing remains but to die. Friends will be standing by unable to help us. Hearing, eyesight, even the power of praying will be fast failing us. The world and its shadows will be melting beneath our feet. Eternity with its realities will be looming large before our minds. What shall support us in that trying hour? What shall enable us to feel, I fear no evil? Nothing, nothing can do it but close communion with Christ. Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith. Christ putting his right arm under our heads. Christ felt to be sitting by our side. Christ can alone give us the complete victory in the last struggle. End quote. Wow. And I mean, I want to hear, I think we should need to hear what he says there. I was so blown away by that because I think even for all of us, this is a matter of Christian maturity. 
I think sometimes we think, well, in my final hours, I'll get my comfort from being able to pray. I'll get my comfort from coming before the Lord and expressing something on my own volition. And I love what he's saying here is, if once held and saved by Christ, always held and saved by Christ, in your final moments, the thing that will actually give you peace is not your own ability to even express or to exert any kind of energy or to even invest in your relationship with God, but it will be Christ himself, you being hidden in Christ, that very thing will give you comfort. But if you do not know that thing now, then when that time comes, do not think that there will be something lesser that's going to be able to provide you with some sense of peace. Yeah. I was overwhelmed and blown away by what he wrote there. Yeah. Yeah. That's powerful stuff. I mean, one thing, uh, there's a, there's a natural good impulse that I think a lot of people recognize that as as we're approaching death, we, we become powerless in a sense. And it's funny because I, you know, I, I've, spent a fair enough time studying Roman Catholic theology. And one of the things that's always kind of, kind of confused me a little bit is that, you know, the Hail Mary prayer, it ends with pray for us now and in the hour of our death. So there's this impulse for us to appeal to a mediator who can pray for us in our death at the hour of our death, when we, we probably in most cases are not with ourselves enough to be able to continue to pray. And they, they get it wrong, obviously, because they're appealing to the wrong mediator. But Ryle gets it right in, in that there, there is this mediator who's powerful enough to intercede for us, not only in, in our life, but also as we approach death in our final hours. That's I think that's really powerful stuff. It's like that all the way through. All the yeah. topics he talks about, talks about happiness, talks about joy, talks about responsibility. It's just a really phenomenal work and something I'm going to definitely return to. I think if you're a teacher, you're a pastor in particular, there's just so many wonderful, instructive phrases in this book that I think this would be actually a really great book to pick up with a friend and to read together because you're going to find that there's enough to wrestle through and everything he challenges you to do is all about practice. So I just love this book. I can't recommend it highly enough. So I'm affirming with J.C. Ryle's Practical Religion. Nice. Nice. That's a good, that is a good affirmation, Jesse. I affirm you. your affirmation. Thank you. I appreciate that. So let's uh, turn it on its head. Let's switch it up a little bit. What are you denying? So I'm not exactly sure what to call this or how to classify it. I think what I'm trying to get at is there's this sense of sentimentalism around extra biblical stories that creep their way into the Christian consciousness. So here's, okay. here's the example, right? How many wise men came to see Jesus on, on the night of his birth? Well, the answer is zero because they came when he was like three years old. Uh, and, right. and even then we don't know how many, the Bible doesn't give us a number. And so that's an example we see commonly at Christmas, right? Or, or the, the hymn, we three Kings of Orient are like, we don't, we don't have any reason to think they were Kings, at least not right. from what the Bible says. And I, I interacted with James White a tiny bit on Twitter, uh, and I'm not trying to pick on James White for this. There's plenty of things to pick on James White about, but this is just this is just an example that came to my mind. He wrote, I'm unaware of a specific name for the Saturday of Passion Week. Probably is something in history, but it could be called, quote, the longest day. All of creation stood still in shock and in anticipation, a day of deep darkness for the apostles, patient suffering and grief. Now, I'm keying in on this phrase, all of creation stood still in shock and in anticipation. 
I, I have no idea biblically where that comes from. And I, I like, I, I can't see it anywhere. Uh, everything that we see in the gospels seems like everybody just went back to normal. Like everybody went back to their lives. The, the apostles hid out for a while cause they, they, they probably rightly figured that the Jewish authorities were after them, but like people went back to their jobs. The city went like, it, there wasn't this sense that like something cosmically was off. We don't have any accounts outside of the, the Bible that there was like a, an awareness of a strangeness for that one day in history. And, and here's another example. This has been circulating around quite a bit. And you might have even heard, some of our listeners may have even heard this at their church service because it's become incredibly popular over the last year. And this is uh, kind of one of those like internet forwards. It says the Gospel of John, uh, verse 20, or chapter 20, verse 7, tells us that the napkin which was placed over the face of Jesus was not just thrown aside like the grave clothes. The Bible takes an entire verse to tell us that the napkin was neatly folded and placed separate from the grave clothes. Early Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been ro rolled away. She ran and found Simon Peter and other disciples, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and I don't know where they've laid them. Peter and the other disciple ran to the tomb to see. The other disciple outran Peter and got there first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen cloth lying there, but he didn't go in. Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He noticed the linen wrappings lying there, while the cloth that had covered Jesus' face was folded up and lying aside. Was that important? Absolutely. Is it really significant? Yes. In order to understand the significance of the folded napkin, you have to understand a little bit about Hebrew tradition of that day. The folded napkin had to do with the master and servant. Every Jewish boy knew this tradition. When the servant set the table dinner, uh, the dinner table for the master, he made sure it was exactly the way the master wanted it. The table was furnished perfectly, and then the servant would wait, just out of sight, until the master had finished eating. The servant would not dare touch that table until the master was finished. Now, if the master was done eating, he would rise up from the table, wipe his finger on his mouth and clean his beard. He would wad up that napkin and toss it onto the table. The servant would then know how to clear the table. For in those days, the wadded up napkin meant I'm done. But if the master got up from the table and folded his napkin and laid it beside his plate, the servant would not dare touch the table because the folded napkin meant I'm coming back. He is coming back. So, so this, this like internet kind of thing that you used to get forwarded to your hotmail account by your grandma it, it circulates and <laughs> and people look at it and they go oh my goodness there's so much meaning embedded in that verse and right. now there's a good impulse to go yeah there there is this a, there's this detail included and and so we should ask questions of the text of why why is it that the napkin or the the face covering was not just discarded like this, the grave clothes was. Why was it folded up? Not only why was it folded up, but why does the text tell us it's folded up? Well, what the text doesn't say is that every Jewish boy knew this tradition. The text doesn't say that Peter immediately knew that Christ had raised from the dead because the, the napkin was folded and it meant the master was coming back. The text doesn't say any of that. What it actually says is that they didn't actually understand that Jesus had resurrected yet. So, so the actual application of the text is precisely opposite from what this sort of meme thing does. And so I guess what I'm denying is there's this impulse that's good to look at the text and ask questions of why is this detail here and what does it mean? And then what we do is instead of actually drawing those details out of the text, a lot of times we look for these extra biblical accounts or extra biblical traditions to try to give the text a meaning, which is not necessary. You know, another one would be um, 
I'm sure everyone has heard this. I heard it and I actually thought it was in the Bible until I, until I made it through my first pass of the Bible and I, I didn't find it. The tradition that the high priest on the day of atonement would have a rope tied around their waist and would wear bells. So if they died right. in the Holy of Holies, that they could drag his body out. That is not in the biblical literature anywhere. It is in some later rabbinical traditions. This napkin table thing appears nowhere in any of the rabbinical traditions. So it seems like it's entirely made up and it can be as small and basically insignificant as saying that on the Saturday between Christ's death and resurrection, that all of creation inhaled and held its breath. Like, okay, yeah, I guess like there's some poetic, poetic elements to that. Or that there were three magi that came and were at the manger. Like, that doesn't really change anything. But there, there's this impulse to invest meaning into the scripture where it's not. Uh, and I just think it's bad. It's just bad, bad news. Like, I think we, we, we should be better than that. The Bible is already full of meaning for us to coax out of the text and for us to, to bring out via exegesis. We don't have to seek these extra biblical and, and they're just, it's just sentiment. Some of it's tradition, some of it's sentimentalism. Some of it is, I think evangelicals being more driven by emotion than anything else. And so they're trying to embed some emotional meaning into the fact, I mean, the Bible says nothing about the Saturday, like zero. There's no, no reflection whatsoever about the Saturday between uh, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection. There's nothing. Right. So, so some people have called it the silent Saturday because there's no rec there's no recording of it. There's nothing there, but to embed some kind of meaning in it and, and to say like, well, the reason this, and of course, you know, like it just, it just doesn't, it doesn't really work. And, and it, it, it represents a, a bad habit that evangelicals have when approaching a text like this. Bad habits go away describing it. I yeah. think I'm, I'm totally with you on that. It seems like the kind of thing that's just not helpful. It's just not useful. It's easy to fall into because it just seems so cool. Mm -hmm. And here's this like secret meaning of something. And I want to really allow myself to become vested in this particular meeting because it just makes me feel good. And we really need to do what Paul has told us to do, which is like, he says, you're reasonable people test everything, test everything. Yeah. So I'm with you. I think that we would all do a little bit better to just not get caught up in that. I once heard a whole sermon on that, the napkin thing. Yeah. Whole sermon. Now it was in a church that was, I would say I was visiting and they, I think handled the, the word of God very loosely. It was also, and I don't mean to be particularly pejorative, but this is just a statement of fact. It was also a very charismatic church. So like I was partly distracted by the bad sermon, partly distracted by the large flags that were being flown overhead, <laughs> waved overhead while the sermon was going on. So it was a combination of things. But I remember thinking at the time, you know, people were really into that because you can stir up like a lot of emotionalism around right. that idea. But the question would be, can't we invest that emotionalism in something that is plain? The main thing being the plain thing, is it not good enough that the son of God, like that, that we can celebrate as Owen would say, right? I think it's Owen, the death of death and the death of Jesus Christ. Is this not enough? Like, can we just yeah. invest ourselves fully into that kind of thing without trying to kind of go around the periphery and try to find other things that might be cutesy to kind of somehow make it more hallmark version of what happened there? Like God is all power. And so in this particular instance, we should just celebrate that power and appreciate what he's done. We don't need anything else. We don't need yeah. like some kind of weird, not, not to mention like in that example, isn't it weird? You want to be like, that's not how this works. That's not how nothing like right. in, even if that were, so let's just presume that all the stuff you said culturally is probably true with respect to like the table setting. What does that have to do with somebody right. rising from the grave? Like we're talking about grave clothes. Yeah. We're not talking about a similar situation. Yeah. And, and you know, the point like he's coming back, well, that's fine. 
but he had already come back. Like that's the point of the narrative is that he, he was, he had already returned. Right. It was not like th- this was about the second coming. It, it, even if it was, even if this is what the text was talking about, the resurrection had already happened. So why, why did the disciples need a signal that he was coming back? Wouldn't the signal actually be to toss it aside because he's finished <laughs> with his work? Like, like there's a number of things like that. I mean, I think like, the the genealogical <laughs> names in the in the beginning of of um, Genesis before the flood. If you arrange them in a certain way and you look at their Hebrew meanings, yeah, it, right. it's like the gospel. And and like okay, may, like maybe I guess. Maybe. But a more likely answer for what we coax out of this text is that the 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 grave clothes were folded up neatly. The the face mask was folded up neatly, which actually indicates that it was intentional. It wasn't it wasn't exactly. grave robbers who just came in and scattered everything everywhere, right? It wasn't the disciples who came in because they would have been acting in haste to try to get in and get out and steal the body quickly. Instead, this shows that somebody, whoever it was, that took the grave clothes off Jesus, and of course we as Christians know it's Jesus himself that did it, but whoever it was, the text is saying, they took the time to fold it up. And yeah. that, that displays intentionality. It t- displays they weren't in a rush. It displays that this wasn't some quirk. It wasn't some accident that happened where his body disintegrated. Like th- there's all sorts of things that are there. That's why it's in the text. And it's also in the text because that's what happened. So we, we shouldn't, it's okay for us. I think, I think this is particularly dangerous, dangerous in certain parts of the reform tradition, because we already are keyed into biblical theological themes, right? We're already looking for this kind of stuff because this kind of stuff is in the Bible. These kinds of allusions to cultural traditions and things that you have to understand are going on in the text are there, but we shouldn't get overly attached to them because the Bible makes zero, zero emphasis of that. Another one is, um, I heard somebody connect the fact that the uh, Levitical law for testing the cleanliness of a building that's been infected with leprosy involved two cleansings, right? The the priest goes in the first time, he scrapes off some plaster to, you know, to sort of mark where the, the leprosy is. And then he comes back in two weeks and he scrapes it again to see if it's moved. And they connected that to say, well, this is why Jesus cleared the temple twice. Because the first time was the first test. The second time was the second test. And he determined that it wasn't clean. So the temple was unclean. And then he went like, that's why he cleansed it. Yeah, maybe, I guess. But the, the the Bible doesn't ever talk about that anywhere. And it kind of goes to our discussion about Easter and why it is that we we sort of look at Easter or Christmas and events that are worthy of celebrating, but why we say like we don't celebrate them. There is a stunning lack of reflection in the New Testament on the birth narratives, right? They're there, they're important, they need to be preached, but there isn't a lot in the uh, in the New Testament that reflects specifically on celebrating the time specifically of Christ's birth. The incarnation, yes, but there's no nativity celebration. There's no reflection on the nativity as it is. Um, the same way that there's no elevated, specific, celebrate this once a year kind of statement by Paul that like we should culminate our worship in this grand festival and celebration of the resurrection once a year in the spring. That's just not there. And so as Christians that want to be regulated and conformed to the scriptures above everything else, we should take the scriptures cues on what it finds important. And if we think we found this cool little quirk, there might be a place for you to sort of like put that in almost as flavor text in, in the, the sermon as sort of like a little bit of an emphasis point, but it should be something that like, if you pull that out, it doesn't really change anything. If, if, if someone, if someone finds out that this is false, 
it doesn't mean the whole sermon is invalid, but then you have instances where someone preaches an entire, so I've heard, I've heard more than one three point sermon talking about the three gifts that the three wise men bring and why those gifts are important and how they reflect our piety, you know, like preparing Christ for burial, worshiping as a King and like all this stuff. Again, those are not listed in the Bible as reasons why those things were brought. Those things had other purposes too, like frankincense, myrrh, and gold had other purposes besides burial, anointing, and kingship. So we shouldn't make, I mean, it's Alistair Begg, right? Make make the main things the main thing, the plain things the main things, and the, you know, I, whatever it is, <laughs> don't get caught up on the little details that may or may not actually be accurate. Focus right. on what the text actually says and draw your meaning out of what the text actually says, not what you think you might be able to coax out of it with some clever cultural illusions. I always like to consider what if when the Magi came, like two of them had gifts, like they showed up, two of them had gifts. Their guy was like, oh, we're, wait, we're bringing gifts to this thing? And like, he was like, I got to stop off at the equivalent of like whatever the ancient 7-Eleven was to like, and that, he just happened to pick up that particular item that that's what he brought. Like, it, I think your point is, is good. Like it's, it's not, these things don't matter, but like put proper weight where proper right. weight is due. Like that where there's attention, there's enough things in the scripture that should draw our devotion and to draw our mental abilities, try to understand. Right. And then beyond that, like we're talking about, we're going to talk about in this episode, there's enough there even beyond giving our intellectual assent that we ought to put into practice. We shouldn't have to make time for all right. of these lesser things that really yeah. are distractions. Are they hurtful? Not always, but are right. they really helpful? Not often. Yeah. So it's better just like you said to focus. Can we make that our thing as well? Yeah. Like the main things, the plain things, and the plain things, the main things. Can we just take, is that copyrighted by Alistair Begg or can we I don't also know. I'm safe that? since I screwed it up, but since you said it verbatim, <laughs> you might get sued by truth for life. <laughs> we, we owe him a royalty, but he's not wrong. And right. I think the, the older we get, it's easier to be distracted by stuff. And we should just sink ourselves into what the scripture puts plainly yeah. in front of us and try to understand those, especially get putting those things into practice. That's really the thing that takes a lot more energy and a lot more effort most of the time, at least for me, but maybe everybody else is super easy. But yeah, for me, this will be the last thing. And then I'll, I'll turn it over to you. If you have a denial is as someone who has written uh, not a lot, I'm not a, a super experienced sermon preacher, deliverer, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I haven't written a lot, but it's a lot of hard work to let the text be the main point of the sermon. Like it right. takes diligence. It takes humility to not impose your own desires and thoughts on the text as you're preparing a sermon. And then as you're preaching it and a lot of these kinds of like, Let's call them like folklore interpretations. Like that's what they are. They're like urban legends about what the text means that have, and that's why I kind of make that allusion to like your grandma sending you a, like a forward in your hotmail account is because they're the same kind of like urban legends about like, oh yeah, NASA found Joshua's missing date. Like those kinds of things are what these texts are like. That's the cheap, easy way to do it. Like it's, it's, it's a lot easier for me to invent some sentimental saccharine theologically questionable story or to find something on the internet and let that be the main point of my sermon than it is to actually let the text lord over me instead of me lording over the text with this invented idea. So I think, I think that's part of the impulse is to just, it's a lot easier. Um, sometimes they're even more understandable and approachable than, than what the text actually is saying, uh, which is why it's easier to use them. So I, I would say just, just don't do it. Like, it's just not worth it. Some of it's fun speculation to talk about, and some of it may have an element of it, 
But I think you're right. At best, it's a throwaway inaccuracy in a sermon that nobody remembers. At worst, it becomes the main point of the sermon. And at that point, you might as well do a sermon out of the, you know, out of the Harry Potter series or from Hercules or something like that. Like if you're not going to actually preach out of the Bible, <laughs> then then do something more interesting than this made up story about servants and masters and what the napkin meant. Right. Or, or I guess to your point. If you're going to do that, then at least when you preach from Harry Potter, you'll presumably get the story right. And that will be more worthwhile than yeah. to something that's now. It's almost like when they say like, this is not wrong. It's not even right. That's the worst thing that somebody can say about something you say. Like, right. it's better that it be wrong than to yeah. be not even right. Yeah. Yep. I am 100% with you. Good. I appreciate that. So do that. you have something that you would like to deny this afternoon? I do have something and I'm, I'm just going to try to keep it brief, but. Again, that's really not what we do. We say it's what we do, but not really what we do. But this is, it's going to get real for just a second. And I'm going to be honest, I'm speaking out of some of my own conviction. So maybe there's nobody else that needs to hear this. And maybe I just need to hear it in my own voice. But what I'm denying against is not telling the truth when we ought to tell the truth. Not just not telling the truth when we have an opportunity, but I'm saying not telling the truth when we ought to. And the reason I'm saying this is because this past week, this was more so a friend of my wife's, but uh, someone that she was uh, had a relationship with. Uh, this woman became very sick very quickly, uh, was uh, related to cancer, and she died very suddenly. Mm. And because it happened so quickly and she was a private person, not many, even those who were very close to her, those whom she interacted with on a regular basis, even knew that this had taken place and all of a sudden she was gone. And... It was hard. It is hard because it's a stark reminder that sometimes we get into this rut. Let, let me say it this way. I'm not going to say we. Sometimes I get into this rut where even though we, you and I have talked about the, the, the primacy of the gospel and how being salt and light means explaining and offering that gospel undiscriminately, unbiasedly to those who are in our lives, it's sometimes just easier to kind of let yourself go and say, well, I'm building a relationship with these people or this person, and I love them. I really do care for them. I know they're not believers. And yet I'll get that tap on my shoulder from the Holy Spirit, or it'll come up, or they'll ask me about what I did over the weekend, and that'll be the time and place. And for this woman, I have every reason to believe that she in her final moments, uh, unfortunately, did not come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I find this desperately haunting in this moment. And I think sometimes we need just a, a reminder that everything in all ways, and we're about to speak about relationships, everything in all ways and at all times is an emergency. People, we live in a dying world. We are dying people. And when we put off the time, when we really don't speak the truth that we ought to, like if somebody was about to walk into oncoming traffic, we'd grab their arm, we'd yell out to them, we'd pull them back if they didn't know. And how easy it is for me to withhold the gospel because, eh, I just don't feel like it. Or uh, maybe it's, I don't feel like it's the right time. Uh, I need to get over that. We all need to get over this because we're all going to end up in situations just like this. So I'm, I'm uh, again, maybe speaking from conviction in my own life, that it's time to stop withholding the truth merely because it seems inconvenient or it's not the right time or place. Yeah. That's a good reminder for us all. I don't know that there's much more to, to add to that. That's a Yeah. I, I didn't mean to like make a, a kind of a dour, but I, I think being that we've just talked about the resurrection, like yeah. if we're going to stand on the promises of God, 
that he is the one that redeems all things, that he in fact does save us. And that saving is both spiritual and bodily, that if we really love the people around us, it's kind of like, remember you and I did that whole episode where we kind of came at that, that, that uh, colloquial saying of like, preach the gospel yeah. and when necessary, use words. Like yeah. I find this kind of attitude equally nonsensical that says something like, well, you need to do your witnessing. And I almost hate to use that word because it's, it's lost all meaning or you need to kind of embed your testimony in relationship. You can't yeah. speak the gospel until you have a relationship. And I think the older I get, the more I fundamentally disagree with that because I think it's helpful and it often is a useful tool and people need to know that you love and care for them. But also again, if, if we really believe what we believe, I mean, how many atheists have written and said things like, I'm not offended by the Christian who tries right. to proselytize because if they actually believe what they say they believe, that they need to let me know yeah. that uh, all is lost without Jesus. And, and that's all I'm saying, because we're going to look back and have experiences like this, and we're going to say, my goodness, all is lost without Christ. And what could I have done? Uh, what was my responsibility in that? And, and I feel that very profoundly in this moment. So... I just hope uh, I can encourage us all to kind of move in that direction. Yeah, that's a good word. I mean, I I think that sometimes people—what I'm about to say is uh, true, but I think sometimes people take this and use it as an excuse. There is a time and a place to be explicit about your evangelism, and there's a time and a place to not— be explicit about your evangelism, right? I don't think that it's the case that we are obligated or even expected to, or even commanded to constantly be preaching explicitly about the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? right? When I'm at work, I'm being paid to do a job. And in order to honor my employer, my attention should be devoted to that job. But when opportunities do present itself, or sometimes I need to make opportunities present themselves, which is part of our responsibilities, uh, I share what I know about Jesus, what I what I think about Jesus, what Jesus has done in my life, what I think the Bible teaches about Jesus. And um, I haven't seen anybody like fall down on their knees and, and give their life to Jesus at work. But when somebody's grandfather dies or when somebody is concerned about their cousin who is sick and they have a spiritual question, they come and ask me. And those are those are better opportunities. Um, but at the same time, people sometimes use that as an excuse, that they're looking for the right opportunity, the perfect timing. And in reality, that perfect timing doesn't doesn't exist. It doesn't. Because right. no, no matter what the timing is, it's God's perfect timing. So right. so we shouldn't be waiting for some, you know, like the stars to align in the sky and spell, like make an arrow that points at someone's head and says, like, evangelize this person. Like, that's not going to happen. So I, I think you're right. And that's a, I mean, that's a heavy, that's a heavy burden, but it's also a burden that Christ bears for us because he knows it's his spirit that ultimately right. brings about regeneration and, and conversion. And I don't want to come down too hard on people. I don't want anybody listening to think that what I'm saying is you need to go out right now and every person that you come across, like you're saying, you need to somehow give a presentation of the gospel. Where this came from for me is that this was a person with whom we had some access yeah. And it was, this person would listen to, to us if we brought something up. So it, it's more like this. I guess I would have phrased it this way to myself and to everybody else. If there's somebody in your life that would listen to you, if you pulled them aside and said, Hey, I just want to talk to you about something real quick. Right. Or there's been something on my mind. And I, I just really feel like I need to tell you this. If you have that kind of person, and you haven't done that thing yet. Then I think that's shame on all of us yeah. because we should do that kind of thing. Again, I'm not saying like, you know, just hit all of your coworkers on Monday morning hard with, <laughs> with the gospel. It's more like, I think we all know the people that we have in our lives 
that uh, maybe we, even we've witnessed to by way of our relationships, but we haven't made explicit the hope that we have that's within us. And if, again, if you can have the conversation where somebody wouldn't necessarily be put off by saying, Hey, can I just, I just want to talk to you about something real quick. That'd be cool. And you can just say your piece there. Then we ought to do that thing. And I just regret that. I'll be honest with you. We didn't do that thing. We didn't yeah. do that thing. And I, I this is, I understand God's superintending will. And yet uh, this is like a, a small, in many ways, like the, the least, the minimum, what it could be, should be normative responsibility when it comes to uh, the Christian walk is I think spiritual maturity is sometimes pulling people aside and say, Hey, I just want to talk to you about something. Something's yeah. heavy on me. And you know, I appreciate you. I, I just got to say this thing Yeah, and we didn't do it. We didn't do it. Yeah. I know very few people that, um, who would be genuinely offended by you saying to them, I, I need to tell you about this because this is a big part of my life. And I, I, I'm not going to push. I'm not going to bash you over the head with it. But I want to explain to you what I believe about sin, the world, and, and, and salvation. Um, I don't think there's a lot of people in the world who are in any sort of any sort of relation with you, like real relation with you. I'm not talking about like you have to be their friend for seven years and then then it's OK. I mean, like coworkers that you have a like a work level friendship with. If you were out after work having a drink with them and you say, can I just tell you something real quick? Because this is important to me and I, I want to make sure. Because I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know if one of us is going to get in a car accident tonight. So I want to make sure I don't leave this unsaid and you, you share the gospel with them. If they tell you, you know what? I'm not interested. Okay, great. I'm, I just wanted to say my piece. Right, and exactly. I love you enough that I'm going to, you know, I'm going to keep praying about this, but I won't bring it up again unless you ask me. Like that, that is enough. And in a lot of cases, when they are ready, when the Holy Spirit does tug at them to, to make that uh, profession of faith, they're going to come back to you. Um, uh, uh, I have a friend in high school. I, I, I don't know that I've told this story on, on the show yet, but I have a friend in high school named Tim that I used to play soccer with, uh, not, not Tim, my best man in my wedding, but a different Tim that I used to sit, uh, at lunch with, with this other Tim, lots of Tims in my life. Um, and, and he was just, he was in like confirmation class, but he was a total like cultural Christian, just really worldly. He was just constantly chasing girls, didn't care about the faith at all. It was just like, it was Minnesota Lutheranism was just part of the background radiation in the state. And, um, I had totally written him off. I mean, Tim, my, my, my best friend, Tim, and I had evangelized him all through high school. We were talking about the gospel, sharing the gospel with him. And I had just written him off. And then out of nowhere, like 15 years later. I get a message from him on Facebook that basically says, I just finished seminary and I want to thank you for sharing the gospel with me in high school. Because even though it took me 10 years, I, I finally, I finally came to Christ and now I'm going into the ministry. And so you, you don't know, I mean, the Bible says one, one man plants a seed and another comes along in water and then the Holy Spirit right. brings the growth. So our responsibility is not to convert people. It's to be faithful in communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ to anyone who will listen to us. I don't think I, I, Scott Clark had a good piece on this. I don't think that means every single person who, who you can make sound waves, hit your ears, hit their ears. Right. Of I course. think that the Lord presents opportunities right. and we are accountable to take advantage of the opportunities. And when possible, sometimes the Lord makes opportunities by us making opportunities. That's okay too. I don't think it means we have to go stand on a, a street corner and, and use a bullhorn. Some people are called to that. I'm not. Um, but we are accountable for sharing with the people who are brought into our lives. So yeah, that's a, that's a good reminder for us all. 
Yeah, and that's here's a horrible pun and a segue. It's not unrelated, of course, to what we're <laughs> going to be talking about in chapter nine of David Murray's book, which is about relationships. He he tells it relates, and he's talking about vertical and horizontal relationships, our relationship with God, our relationship with each other. And it's interesting, I think we might note where he places this chapter. You notice that it comes toward the end of the book. I think we right. only actually have three more chapters left here. And so it's really subsequent to all of the work that he's been saying we ought to do with respect to our Christian maturity. That is how we understand rest, how we eat. And it's almost as if he's trying to make sure this isn't, I think, a plea to say something like, well, you can't love others until you love yourself. That's super nonsense. And he's not saying here, well, you have to get your own life in order before you can really have life together right. with others. But what he's saying is there is an appropriate focus on being centered first in Christ, centered first in who you are in Christ, and then letting that, of course, shape, I want to say so badly, the intent before content thing, shape. <laughs> how that reflects, you know, shape your relationships with others. Yeah. And one of the things that I noted in this chapter that I, I actually kind of stumbled upon in my own experience because I did this poorly was he talks in the beginning about our relationship with God. And I want to just read the sentence here. He pens, he says, but giving time and energy to our relationship with God actually increases free time and energy because it helps us get a better perspective on life and order our priorities better. It reduces the time we spend on image management and it removes fear and anxiety. I, when I read that, I was like, he's right on because yeah. I've had a lot of things in my life recently that are of a high degree of stress and I found it's easy to say, well, I need to do those things. I need to devote myself to those things entirely and utterly and without exception. And you can get burned out in those things such that not only do they lose their value and you lose your steam, but you actually become exhausted. And this for me harkens back to that quote from Martin Luther, to have prayed well is to have studied well. Yeah. And I think you could transpose that into so many other areas of life. Like in other words, to be a good father, to be a good husband is to have prayed well, to have worshiped God well, to have a strong relationship with God that when we say, well, I just don't have time to invest. And he's calling us to invest. And even to pull in J.C. Ryle's book, again, Practical Religion, he at one point says the best investment you can make is in what he calls his practical religion, not formal religion, but what he's referring to is actual relationship with God. Right. He says, you'll never regret investing more into that. You will never look back on that and say, I spent too much time, too much energy, too much effort, too many hours after yeah. that thing. And so it's interesting to me that basically what uh, Murray is saying here is kind of, not if you want to get ahead as if it's quid pro quo, but if you want to do well in all those things, you ought to first focus on the relationship with God, actually forsaking that. In other words, you'll get a better return from focusing first on relationship with God and then going to those other things and not neglecting God because you think you'll get a better return by focusing on the stuff that you feel like you ought or need to do. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's right on. And, you know, I, this analogy gets overused, but I think it's appropriate here, both in relation to where this chapter falls in the rest of the book. And then also in relation to where he places getting your relationship with God right, right? I hate that language, like getting right with Jesus. But right. but in terms of prioritizing your relationship with God and sort of getting that reset to where it needs to be, or you know what I mean, um, <laughs> the, the idea of putting on your own mask before you help others. Like everybody who's been on a plane, yes. it's almost yes. a joke at this point that the stewardess says, put on your own mask before helping others. 
and and what well, that's really true because if you can't if you're unconscious because you didn't put on your oxygen mask, then you're never going to be able to help the elderly person that happened to be sitting next to you or your child put on their mask and both of you are going to die, right? That's the same idea here is he's not saying like you can't have relationships with others until you get your own stuff in order. More what he's saying is that just like any other repair process, there is a sequence a sequence of things that works right. And if you don't do it in a particular sequence, you may actually do more damage. Relationships are all interconnected with each other, right? My relationship with you is tied up in and affected by my relationship with my wife and my relationship right. with, um, with your parents and with your wife. All of those relationships are interconnected. And if, if something goes wrong in one of those relationships, it's going to affect the other relationship. And this would be the most dramatic example, right? If something were to happen and I was to become divorced from, from my wife, I don't think the podcast would continue. Like, just to be honest, like our right. relationship cannot be independent of my marriage to your sister. And no matter how much I want it to be, uh, I don't want it to be, but if I did want it to be like, it's, it's there. And so our relationship with God, he's, he's framing this as kind of like the central relationship. If you, you'll hear about it a lot when, a, when a, uh, like a new convert comes to the faith, they sort of like focus on like trying to get their, their spouse on board with the, the new religion because they think they can't fully devote themselves to this new religion until their spouse is on board. And in actuality, really, what they need to do is focus on solidifying their faith and becoming a mature Christian, a mature, a mature believer in Christ, in order then for that to affect the other, the other relationship. Um, so I think that that's a good place to start. He, he has this list of relationships um, that he's trying to emphasize, right? And so he he puts it in this order, the relationship with God, the relationship with our wives, the, or if you're a woman reading this with your husband, the relationship with our children, with our pastors and elders, and with our friends. And he says, even if we just get that order of priorities right, it will make massive difference. And I think there's a lot of people that might actually quibble with this ordering, but I think he's right on, right? We have to start with, with the most central relationship of our life, of our existence, which is our relationship with God. And once we've, once we stabilize that and we're, we're growing and fostering that correctly, in actuality, the rest of those relationships tend to fall in order automatically as a consequence of that, because we're now, we're now focused on obeying God's law, which has things to say about how we treat our wives and how we interact with them, how we treat our children, how we relate to the church and to our pastors. All of those things fall in line after that. But then the next thing to stabilize and to focus on is going to be your relationship with your spouse, right? Because that's the person you are formally covenantally obligated to in a way that you really are not obligated to any other person. And then your children, which again, you're formally covenantly, uh, covenantally obligated to them in a way that you're not obligated to. I, I don't think he tried to do this, but there is this sort of hierarchy of covenants or hierarchy right. of covenant relationships I agree. that he's presenting, maybe unintentionally, maybe he's presenting it intentionally, just isn't using that language because he's trying to write for a more general audience. But there's this concentric circle of covenant relationships that he presents, which extends out to your friends. And then I would actually, I would have actually extended in light of our, our uh, or conversation just a minute ago, extended that then to, to those who are not your friends but fall outside of that, whether they're Christians as a first concentric circle and then non-Christians that you interact with as the, sort of the final concentric circle. Right. Um, he, he's not focused on that. I, obviously, like, it's a short book. He can't write about everything. But I would say you, you also need to work on getting those right, right? The relationships that I have with my coworkers, 
they're not disconnected from the relationship I have with my wife because the way that I interact with them at work affects my mood. It affects my own personal life. If I am being a gossipy person at at work about my coworkers behind their back, chances are that I'm going to be drawn to be a gossipy person about the people I go to church with. So all of these relationships are interconnected. So although I agree with his order of priorities, I think we do need to make sure we say you can't disconnect them. It's not like it's not like there's neat boundaries between any of them. They yes. all affect each other and, and influence each other. Yes, I would totally confirm that. And I'm going to withhold for just a second the perhaps inappropriate metaphor that I'm going to bring to bear as an example <laughs> of that. I like what you said. And I was thinking the same thing, actually, that there's embedded. He kind of, again, he doesn't do this explicitly, so I don't want to superimpose on Mr. Murray what he might be trying to expound here. But this idea that there's promises and covenants built into all these relationships right. and they become increasingly derivative as he moves away from the center. And I think that's appropriate. And so the inappropriate example I would say is it's, you know, I, I think we underestimate sometimes how what, you know, sin is a, a basically a rebellion against God. And right. I think we sometimes fool ourselves into considering that that rebellion can be compartmentalized that in rebelling against God, especially when we, we seek after sin, this kind of habitual sin that we don't take seriously enough, that somehow, even if it's not, let's say, a sin of relationship, that somehow it doesn't affect everybody else or anybody else. And the bottom line is it does. Right. And it's it's not, it's it's like it's a counterfactual world that actually exists when you sin against God, especially habitually, this cannot help but spill over into how we interact, even in ways right. that you, we might find that are so subtle that we cannot discern them. So the inappropriate metaphor I have is it's like peeing in a pool. Like it's <laughs> uh, right. I mean, it's like we can fool ourselves into thinking that somehow this doesn't impact others that are in the pool, but guess what? They're in the pee water now with you. And yeah. that's the bottom line. You, you can't hold it. It's, it's out of the, out of the back. <laughs> I might've gotten horrible. like spiking the punch or something that's less <laughs> disgusting, but it's that very disgustingness that I'm after, to be right. honest with you. It's, yeah, it's no, that's that, true. Um, we know, we know if you're the one that done that in the pool and you're looking at everybody else, you know. And yeah. the bottom line is here's everybody else interacting with your wife, your friends, your coworkers, your colleagues, and they don't know. And yet uh, it's, it's impacting them. It's absolutely impacting them. And so yeah. one of the things I want to skip ahead, if that's cool with you and get to like one of the kind of later relationships they talks about, because for this very reason, I, I find it fascinating and lovely, quite honestly, that he references, he puts up relationships with pastors and elders. And you and I have been pretty outspoken about how important that is. And I love that he just puts it out there because I think sometimes we think, well, this relationship with pastors and elders, I don't want to give my pastors a hard time. I prefer to obviously be in the good gracious. And of course, Paul encourages us to be that way. Right. But that really their oversight in my life only comes into play when there's conflict with them. Right. That of course I'll listen to them when there's conflict or I disagree, but he talks about this need for spiritual oversight and whether you and I are talking about whatever myriad of pastors who have fallen from grace, Tulian or Ravi Zacharias, part of that conversation is always come back to this idea of oversight right. and how important that is. So I, I'm wondering like, have we just underemphasized this is like oversight and relationships with the pastors. And I'm, when we say relationship, what he's after here is not just like you're friendly with them and they know your name and you can express at least that you're, you're on their team and you yeah. have their back. It's not that it's that there's something deeper here that we are understanding 
that almost like a good parent, if they are a shepherd, that they actually have some responsibility over our well-being, and we're willing to ease in, lean into that relationship that we have with them. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. One of the things that I have learned uh, by experience over the last uh, almost 10 years now of being married to your sister is what it's like to have a pastor who actually knows what's going on in your life. And um, I I hadn't (laughs) had that before, right? Your pastor, uh, all the pastors that I had before, you know, they might know some things about you. They probably have an idea of where you work. And depending on the size of your church, they may not even know that. They might know if you've gone to them with a particular sin struggle or a particular situation you need spiritual advice on. But having a pastor that actually intimately knows the details of your life, of of where you live and who you know, how your relationship with your wife is and how your relationship with your mother-in-law is, like all of those things were things that were totally foreign to me. And now that I have a pastor, for a different reason than than most pastors should be involved in your life, but now that I have a pastor who actually knows and is involved in my life, who knows when I'm frustrated at work, who knows when my wife has been sick, who knows you know, he asked me about the podcast every week. Right. So like having a pastor who's involved in my life that way, I I'm thinking about, you know, I'm not going to be at this. I'm probably not going to be at this church forever. And even if I am, this pastor is not going to be at this church forever. So there's going to be a point where my father-in-law is no longer my pastor and thinking about the next pastor who isn't going to be involved in my life that way. The thought is, I need to make sure he's involved in my life that way. If I'm making a podcast, I need to make sure he knows that I'm making the podcast and is interested, not necessarily interested in like, oh, I love your podcast, but like interested enough to know (laughs) what I'm teaching people on the internet, right? Right. How many podcasters, going back to like Ravi, Ravi had no oversight in in terms of ecclesiastical oversight in, in reality. So while there were people who were aware of what he was teaching, he wasn't really accountable to his ordaining body for what he was teaching. Now, formally, he wasn't teaching anything that was heresy, but there are a lot of people out there who don't have any accountability and how much more uh, pronounced is it in those big public cases, but in our own personal life, right? If my pastor doesn't know me well enough to be able to know when I come to church on Sunday that I'm having a bad day. There has been times when dad has pulled me aside before the service, back when we were meeting in person, he's pulled me aside. He's like, are you okay? Because you seem a little off. Right. So having a pastor who knows you well enough, this is, I've said this before. I don't think it's sinful to have a big church, but I'm not a hundred percent sure how a single pastor can manage a church bigger than about 50 people and actually accomplish the task that God has called him to. There might be some really specially gifted pastors out there who could handle a bigger body and really know their congregation, but I don't, I don't know many, I don't know any personally, and I'm not sure how it could be the case that a, a pastor could even you know, a pastor who's pastoring a church of a thousand people could even know who wasn't there on a Sunday, let alone know who be able to tell who had a fight with their wife on the way to church and be able to say like, Hey, are you okay? Is everything okay? And to be able to get involved in their life that way. And that may seem, I'm sure there are some people that are listening. They're like, man, that's a little bit of pastoral overreach. That can be, it certainly can be when they start to issue edicts and commands and and start to bind people's conscience about what kind of, you know, what color the walls in their house are going to be or whether they should have bought that new car or all these different things. But having a pastor who really knows you 
really, really knows you, that is one of the best blessings that I've had in the last 10 yeah. years of my life of being involved in this church and involved, you know, in having your dad in various capacities be my pastor. Um, it, it's been a very huge blessing in my life. So I don't want to underemphasize that. And I don't think there are many Christians out there that really know that blessing. And that's, right that's a sad thing. And I think that's part of what he's getting at. And on the flip side, your pastor needs friends, right? right. This, this book is written to, to primarily to people who are in ministry your pastor also needs to have these relationships. And a lot of times it's very difficult for pastors to develop friendships in within their congregation or, or even outside their congregation, because sometimes pastors, no matter where they go, they're seen as the pastor. They're seen right. as, as the spiritual leader of a community, not so much anymore with the way the world is now, but it, it very much used to be that a, a pastor in a town was kind of the town's pastor, whether that person was part of the congregation or not. Uh, you see that in sometimes in old movies where like a person goes into a, a you know a character in a, a movie is a, a priest at the local Catholic parish. He goes into town and the person at the counter insists on calling him father. And he's like, well, I'm not your father. You can just call me Bill. And he's like, no, no, I'll give fa father Bill. Like that's a real thing that pastors have to struggle with. So it's important, as important as it is for us to build relationships with our pastors in this spiritual oversight, capacity. It's also important for people who might be friends with the pastor to develop those friendships as well for their benefit. Yes. Yes. I, and that's why I bring it up because I think that some of this might be new to some people. And so what I would encourage uh, some to do is if you actually don't know any of your elders, well, I mean, that's okay right now, but I would say go to whatever directory you have reach out through the appropriate channel and ask if you could have a phone conversation or a Zoom, yeah. or if you're able to meet somehow in person, have a cup of coffee in a safe place with one of your elders. And I would say, I would encourage you to make the purpose of that conversation so you don't freak them out and think like, oh, there's something, <laughs> this person wants yeah. to talk to me something seriously wrong. Just say like, I just wanted to get together. Like I've been going to the church for a while and I just support and love what God is doing in our church. And I want to get to know you better. And I want you to know me and know that I'm behind yeah. you and that I want to be actively involved. I think this is why reading literature like this is so important because on the face it seems like it's so simple because we're like, yeah, understand that I have given intellectual assent to those ideas and those concepts and I am good. But what you and I are talking about right now is the actual hard work of living it out, of yeah. like trying to process. Like you just brought up this like kind of like a bombshell statement, like what is the appropriate size for church? We got that from this book as we're talking about, right. well, what does it mean to have good relationships with our pastors and elders? That's where this stuff matters. So like loved ones, like we need to be after this kind of thing. Again, our Christian maturity is not less than good theology, but certainly more than that. It's how yeah. we apply that good theology. So this is a place where I saw some weakness in my own life of really trying to get to know our elders and my church a little bit better and for them to get to know me. Because again, it's a great encouragement for them to know that the, of the lay people, that they're parishioners praying, that are behind the mission, that are eager and excited to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, that want to be involved. And quite honestly, sometimes that aren't just being plain difficult. So yeah. it's just a blessing for them to know that they are being admired and that and they are being listened to and that there is actual accountability there, that they're, yeah. you're willing to submit to them and they know because they need to be encouraged with their own responsibility that they have a tremendous job to lead in the yeah. pastor in particular as the under shepherd carries that mantle. And so it, it goes a little bit both ways. Like they need to know that like, yeah, you have a real responsibility here because I am following after you. And the pastor also needs to know that there are people that are saying, I will follow after you. Right. And so that 
I guess like symbiotic relationship is something that I think Mr. Murray really gets after here. And it seems to me it's kind of like in a bear market. It's underemphasized right now. Yeah. It's almost like we, those things, relationships, those card conversations come into play only when something dramatic or traumatic happens. And I'm saying like, well, why don't we just like, just schedule a time, talk to them. Like they, yeah. I think what, what elder pastor is going to be like, I regret that we did this, <laughs> that, that you, that you explained a little bit uh, who you are, where you're, where you're at in life. And that, uh, I, I've been able to see that you're, uh, I've, you know, committed to our church and that really you want to fall under what is appropriate official spiritual oversight. Like what pastor's going to be like, no, I don't want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're looking for an easy way to breach this conversation too, because it, it can be a little awkward, especially like if you've been a member of a church for a really long time and you've never had this kind of interaction with your pastor. It's kind of like when you've you've been, quote unquote, friends with someone for a long time, but you actually don't know their name. Like so, someone who's been in the circle of your, like the circle of your acquaintances and they're always like yeah. at the same parties as you or they're taking the same classes as you, but you've never learned their name. The best way to break that ice is just to say, this is dumb, but I don't even know your name. Right? Yeah, right. In a lot of ways, you just have to do it. But one way that might make this a little easier if you're trying to initiate this kind of conversation or this kind of relationship with your pastor, pick up a copy of a, of your favorite Puritan paperback for Banner, right? <laughs> Buy them a copy, give them a copy and say, I would love to meet with you maybe like once a month and just discuss what I'm learning out of this. Yeah, right. right. Because just like this book that we're talking about here which on one level is a very simple book, right? It's very straightforward, direct advice about particular things in life, right? But it, it leads to, when you're having a conversation about this book, it leads to these other questions. It leads to us talking about, well, you know, like let's say you pick the bruised reed with your pastor. You're going to have to talk about what makes you a bruised reed. He's going to have to talk about what makes him a bruised reed. Right. And now all of a sudden you're both talking about the struggles and the challenges that you face in life, Right. And no matter what book it is, if you actually invest in it, you're going to run into those kinds of conversations that open the door. And I don't know a pastor out there that if a congregation member said, I really, I really desire and I'm really hungry for discipleship. Can we look at this book? Uh, unless you're in one of those churches where the pastor just really is so busy, they don't have time for you, in which case, eh, maybe we need to address that issue first. Maybe your meaning needs to be to ask them what you can help take off their plate so they have a little bit more time. But other than that, there's not a lot of pastors out there that are not going to love to have a, a, a congregation member come and say, please shepherd me, please disciple me, please, right. please, let's talk about spiritual things together. I want you to, I want you to pour into my life. That's what they're there to do. That's what their passion usually is. Even though most of the time they don't have time to do it as the way they would want, they're going to welcome that opportunity. And it's an easy entry point to make that what might be a little bit of an awkward conversation, uh, it makes it a little bit less awkward because there's something there for you to focus on besides just the the, the difficulty of like building this new relationship. Yeah, that's right on. So uh, here's what I would actually like to do if, um, again, we're having a podcast meeting like in real time right here. Yes. So I would love for people if, they, if they're taking this advice, which I think is just is hopefully just really good instruction, email us and let us know if you've reached out and tried something like this. And you can do that by going to info or emailing rather at info at reformbrotherhood.com or you can leave us a voicemail at 607-444-2767. Bros. But I, I'm very serious about this. I would love to hear people if they've said, you know what, I'm going to reach out to my elders. Like, just tell us how that went or yeah. how, how you did it. Because I think it's one of those things where 
it's just underemphasized. And we shouldn't, here's the other thing too. I think in some ways this encourages our elders. The elders are not like an advisory panel. They're right. the board of directors. They're, they're there for an explicit purpose that is greater than just that. Right. And I think we ought to give them invitation into our lives. So when you say to one of your elders, I want you to get to know me because I really respect the role the church has in my life. Uh, this is just like a different paradigm. Even in our yeah. world, like it's just a different paradigm. And some churches do this well and some don't do it quite as well. Right. So, but the question is like, who should this be on? Who is the onus on? Who should ex- exercise the volition? And after reading this chapter, I'm thinking, well, maybe it's me. Maybe yeah. I need to reach out. I shouldn't be waiting for the pastor to say, hey, how are you doing today? Yeah. Do you have time for coffee? That it's, it's also my responsibility to say like, I want to be involved in the life of the church. And that's not a cliche anymore. I'm going to start by seeking some relationship with those who are the leaders who have authority over me. Yeah. So I would love to hear from people who uh, maybe have tried this or me are doing it or maybe do it already. I would love to hear what people have done. And as like a slight aside for the voicemails in particular, Tony, there's something that I've meant to say to our listeners for a long time that I haven't said. What's that? Okay. It's, it's this thing. So we love the voicemails. You love them. I love them. We listen to them. We rejoice over them. We snuggle with them. We love it when people leave us voicemails. But apparently people feel so comfortable with our voicemails. <laughs> Do you know where I'm going with this? I don't, but I'm, okay. I'm excited to see where you're going well, with this. We're, we're, in it, we're in the information age. We're in an age where personal information is so easily distributed, but it's, <laughs> it's so difficult to call back and it can be dangerous. Our voicemail is mostly secure, of course, but what we love to play the voicemails so that people can hear your voice in our conversation. And it is a family together. That's why we do this. We're doing it together. And one of the things I'll be honest that sometimes uh, prevents us from doing that is we don't like to edit voicemails. It's not because we're lazy. I mean, I am lazy, but Tony is not. Lazy. It's, no, I'm pretty it, lazy too. It, well, well, it's not principally because we're lazy um, <laughs> that we do this. It's because we don't like to edit voicemails because that takes away from right. the, the content, the candor, the, the quality of the voicemail. And so I'm saying all this because I'm bearing the lead. Oftentimes people will leave their personal phone numbers in the voicemail. <laughs> we're, we're happy that you do that, but just so you know, we can see the, <laughs> we can see yeah. the number, but unfortunately Tony and I don't have enough time to call everybody back. We would love to yeah. do that and have conversation with you and, and talk on the phone. We really would. But that I would say, leave us a voicemail, but but please, please, we love you. You don't need to leave your phone <laughs> number. I appreciate the people who have done that because it's so kind. Because what they're saying is you can get back at me right. and you can dial this number to do that. Um, but we'd love for you to, to leave some voicemails, keep them relatively brief, and don't leave too much personal information <laughs> just because we're trying to protect you as well. We yes. want to put this on the internet, but I'm sure you would not like a bunch of people, several thousand people to know your personal phone number. And then perhaps call you out of the blue. We can't vouch for every single person that would hear that voicemail. That's true. And how level-headed or not they would be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is a totally unrelated thing, but this explains <laughs> why I was taken surprised by you asking me for the phone number because I was very busily trying to pull up the website in order to confirm that our contest is live. So... If you've been listening, and if you listened last week, we are doing a contest to give away a copy of Reset by David Murray, which is generously provided by Crossway. So if you uh, are interested in winning that, 
which we hope you've already bought the book, but we want you to give the book to somebody who needs it, who you, maybe your pastor, maybe you could use this book as an opportunity to start this conversation with your pastor and get to know them and also provide them some wisdom on how to balance their life a little bit. If you go to reformbrotherhood.com uh, slash contest, you can enter to win a copy of uh, Reset by David Murray. It's a simple entry. Uh, you just have to click on a couple things, look at our page on web, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to win. We're not going to do any of that stuff where you have to like submit a picture of yourself with with uh, Reset by David Murray and your favorite scotch or whatever it happens to be. Uh, I, I don't know who I had in mind with that. It wasn't Distilling Theology because I don't think they've ever done that. Although, if you want to do that now, Distilling Theology, I want royalties. You're um, welcome. Blake and Justin, who I'm going to see next weekend. Um, check it out. Go, come win the contest. Uh, there's one copy that we're giving away. Uh, otherwise, if you don't win and you still want to give it to your pastor, it's not super expensive. I'm sure they would appreciate it. And uh, we would love to get some more voicemails. And uh, when you're on the website, you can also click at the top. There's a link uh, that says store. You can buy some cool Reform Brotherhood merch. You can click on the Join the Brotherhood uh, link, which will give you some other ideas on how to get involved with the, the stuff we're going on here, including the phone number, the email address, all of that fun jazz. Uh, so check it out. We don't, we don't do a lot with the website. We don't have a ton of traffic, but uh, it's there for you if you need it. There's, there's all of our back episodes are available. Uh, there's a plugin that tells you what episodes might be related to other episodes. So if you're looking to fall down the rabbit hole, it'll help you out that direction. Uh, you can check it out, but especially for this contest, reformbrotherhood.com slash contest. I will, at this point, you deserve some kudos, Tony, because you do a real good job of keeping the website up to date. I do zero on that. So all of that credit belongs to you. And one of the things I really appreciate about that actually is you can go and search for a particular topic. So the search engine is is pretty strong. It's pretty killer. So if you're looking for something, even if it's, you don't know if we've ever talked about it before, chances are at some point we talked about something at this point that's like related. And then if you often, you really do a good job of in the notes, tagging other related episodes, especially if it's part of a series. So that might be a good way. If you want to go down the rabbit hole and you want to get in there deep, there's a lot of information on the website that you can use. And again, I would encourage everybody, especially in the context of talking about their elders, maybe reaching out, leave us a voicemail, 607-444-2767. Bros. Thank you. That was a cue. And uh, last but not least, so thankful for everybody that is part of this community, leaving voicemails, sending us emails, again, getting your voice as part of this conversation. And in addition, those who support us on patreon.com backslash reform brotherhood, we are so grateful, so thankful. So this is, we, you know, I mean, you and I said, let's record some conversations and see who listens. And what we found out is there's a family. And yeah. we shouldn't have been surprised. Of course, there's a family out there that's processing all the same things that we are. And so we want you to be part of that and lend your voice. Would you lend your voice to us? Just not your phone number in that voicemail, but yes. would you lend your voice Friends, to us? Friends, countrymen, <laughs> Romans, lend me your voice, but not your personal cell phone number. Not your PII. You can keep yes. that to yourself. P-I-I. We love you, but that is for you and you only. PII? What does that stand for? I believe it's uh, personal identifiable information. Yes, man, that's so, like that's the cool slogan. That's like the cool initials. There's so many in these acronyms days. for that same thing. There's PHI. There's PII. It's ridiculous. It's too much. PBE. PMI. PMI. TMI. <laughs> TMZ. ABC. BBQ. TMZ. Okay, can I say one thing as we wrap up? That's like totally off the subject. Please do. So my wife has been going back and she's been rewatching, rewatching. All of the series that the aftermath by Lee Remini. 
Oh, man. Which is about Scientology. Oh, man. She's, she's going through the whole thing. So I've been like kind of going in and out of the room and watching this stuff. Can I just say how grateful I am for Jesus Christ, yeah. for the truth of the gospel, yes. like just and for like the real power of the gospel and the power of the gospel being that there is no good thing. Like all these things, you know, as like, you know, Paul lists out all this, all this nonsense, all this junk, but God in his great mercy. Yeah. So I've just been so thankful. I just walk away from all those shows, all those episodes and think again, this is why we need to speak up and we need to speak out, especially yeah. those in our own lives who we have relationships with who will listen to us. So that's like, that's just, that's straight bonus. Like that's just, that's free of charge. We should do an episode on that. Oh, no, that might get us on their radar. We don't want to be on their radar. Well, here's the thing. Have you ever thought you've seen all that stuff, right? Or yeah, some of yeah. it, right? Yeah. Okay. So we like, binge watched like an entire season at, at that's Christmas right. break I think, one year. Yeah. I think we all did that together and it, because it's like a car wreck, right. isn't it? Oh, yeah. it's, you just can't look away and, and it just gets so insane. And, um, and it's not even like, I think from the person from the outside, it's like, well, religious belief, belief in general can sound extreme when, uh, you do not understand it properly. It, it, I'm talking about something like beyond that. Yeah, oh, uh, yeah. I'm not saying condoning those documentaries, but you can watch them and get a sense at least for, I, mean, I think it's helpful to understand what people believe and we need to be careful because like, you don't know, talked about the past, you know, Paul speaks about people essentially being prisoners of war of Satan, that this is his domain, his world, right. and that we were all once in that place. So these aren't like silly little people. They're trying to find the truth. They think this is the truth. Yeah. Um, and now I've just totally lost where I was going, except to say that like the thing about it is I thought like, I love, for instance, when the Mormons or the Jehovah Witnesses come and knock oh, on yeah. our door, because I'm always like, come on in, we'll make some cookies. Like, let's, let's talk about the scriptures. Yeah. Like, let's I'm talk about the Bible. I'm to work now that you're here. Let's do this. Yes. But Buckle up, I, buttercup. I've said to my wife, uh, having seen this again, like I've said, like, I, I just feel like you can't infiltrate Scientology in the same way because no. like, it's a whole insane process. Yeah. So it's like not the same thing. And part of that is they're not trying to proselytize really in some ways they are, but I've often thought like, what would it be like if I just go in, like I'm in downtown LA and I walk into one of the Scientology buildings. I'm like, yeah, I'll take your personality test. And then like, I just try to turn that, like I have this dream this like, you know, thing in my mind where I'm like, my fantasy is I'm just going to drop like the Jesus, the J bomb and try to explain the gospel. <laughs> yeah. Don't do that. I don't do think it'll work. Don't yeah. do that. No. I that's want how you, you so badly a, though. With I want Scientology, you so that's how you end up in a ditch. I'm serious. <laughs> like, don't do that. Don't do that. I'm afraid what if we for did you, it together? We no, tagged Then we it. end up in a ditch together. <laughs> There's a lot more of them. I'm not afraid to share the gospel. If you want to go preach the gospel, that's fine. But like, I'm not going into their personality cult center. No, 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 no. I mean, it, no, no, it's, no. it's a crazy thing. But at the end of the day, I, like ultimately, it has made me so thankful for Jesus yeah. Christ. And again, this idea that every other religious worldview is all about in some way it boils down to, it distills down to the single element of achievement. Yep. And what a wonderful blessing that the truth is that in being reconciled to God, there's nothing that we can do to accomplish yeah. that. And yeah. Jesus has done it all. And then as if that weren't enough, right? That like somebody would come and represent us and live perfectly. Then in, in the final day, he defeats death, like goes into the mouth, the belly of the beast. Like we're, we're talking about literally like Mandalorian style, so to speak, that's derivative of this in, in a way and, and kills it, wipes it out. And then we not only just receive amnesty, but everything that Christ earned has somehow been transferred to my account. Like this, th like who has time for any of this other nonsense when that is the reality of this world? It, it's just 
mind boggling how good God is to us. Man, with a God like that, I could leap over a wall. <laughs> or, or just go through wall. it. Just go just through, go through it. it. Oh like, yeah. Yeah. Like, do you, do you not feel like, uh, I mean, I want to be careful here because David was writing under the inspiration of the spirit. I just, I really wish the Holy Spirit had been like, I can go through a wall. And, I mean, and it's like, just cultural. If, if that scripture was inspired these days, then it would definitely be going through a wall. <laughs> well, well, that's what I was going to say to bring it to like to a final close and all the way back to the very, 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 very beginning. What I want to say is like, if that had been the scripture, then we could say like, uh, we could say something like this. We realize like the Kool-Aid man commercial, that's actually from the Psalms. That's where they got it from is... <laughs> That's was, the cultural touch point for that psalm is the Kool-Aid yeah. commercials. Yeah, ex- exactly. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Well, I think that wraps it up. Until next time, Jesse, <laughs> honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Uh-